Just a couple of things to highlight in the, in the bulletin. Uh, Wednesday evening, we're back on a regular schedule with our children's ministries. Uh, next Sunday morning, worship 8, 29, 40, 11. Just note that next weekend is when we change our clocks. So I uh, just want to remind you about uh, doing that. I think we'll all be late if we don't do that, right? I always get that confused. But anyway, uh, just move, change your clock and uh, we'll, as we uh, prepare for next Sunday worship. I want to invite you to uh, join me in the Apostles' Creed that is printed in your bulletin, or sorry, printed in the inside cover of your hymnal. Let's declare our Christian faith in the words of this historic affirmation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We have the privilege of giving back to uh, our Lord just in some of the ways in which he has blessed us. The ushers are going to come and assist us as we give, and children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church.
We have many things to uh, remember in prayer from our uh, local community to our extended communities to uh, our lives, things that we may be public and may not be. But there are ongoing issues that we want to continue to pray about. I do want to add to this list uh, Joy Blaisdell and her family, death of her father last night. And uh, I know that there are burdens and concerns that weigh heavily upon us as we gather in worship today. If you'd like to come and use the altar as a place where you pour out your heart before God, please come and join me. As we contemplate all that God has done for us in Christ, His grace poured out in our lives, Let's take this moment of silence to give thanks and to offer to God the, the prayers, the burdens that are on our hearts. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. And that through Christ we are indeed redeemed, set free. And we live in the joy of intimacy with you. We bow before you this morning in humble repentance for all of our sin, for our failure to 
to trust you about who you know we can be. For inability to see what you place right before us. For our incapacity to love as you call us to love. For the ways in which we choose selfishly. And we ask for your forgiveness. Father, this morning, we also pray for your strength to everyone who is feeling the, the squeeze and, and the push and the struggle of the stuff that comes to us in this world. We pray for your comfort, the comfort of your Holy Spirit to rest upon every person who comes today with a sense of sorrow and loss. We think especially of Joy and her family, and Greg's family, Elizabeth's family. And for all who are grieving today, We pray your healing upon all who are struggling with illness and pain and are in need of healing today. We pray for Betty Lou and Micah, for Bonnie, Louise, for Crystal and Ruth and John, for Bill and Emily and John and Clarence. For others who are on our minds and hearts, we pray for your healing grace in each life. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Mozambique who continue to to recover from the severe flooding. We pray for all around the world who have been hit with natural disasters. We pray, Father, for the leaders of our nation as they attempt to work out a a budget compromise. And we pray that the decisions that are made will be in the best interests of the people who have the most need and the people who have the least listened to voice. Father, we pray that you will continue to draw us together in heart and purpose as we worship you. Let the spirit of the cross be upon us in power and in grace. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who so graciously provides us with a model for prayer that teaches us how to pray and unifies us in mind and purpose. The prayer which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
The scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. That can be found on page 1072 in your pew Bible. Again, that's John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I have no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he has claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed you over to me, to you, is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
Lost are saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your
Father, we want to praise your great name. And as we've sung, as we have prayed and listened to your word, we pray that you will continue to speak into our hearts, that we would worship you, and we ask this through Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. difficult to imagine a scene that was any more incongruous and ironic, that you have a, a pagan ruler who is trying to let this man claiming to be the son of God go, and the people who are the religious leaders of the very people who he has come to save are trying to execute him. This scene, as the scene continues to unfold in John's gospel, Jesus has, has been interviewed by Pilate. Pilate recognizes there's no reason to execute him. He keeps trying to release him, and the religious leaders keep pushing him back. And you come to this point in the story that we read today, and Pilate decides, you can almost see the wheels turning in his mind, and he decides, maybe if I rough Jesus up a little bit, that will appease them. And so he hands Jesus over to the soldiers, and they, they beat him, they flog him, they put this crown of thorns on his head that it causes lots of bleeding, and by the time he comes out, Jesus doesn't look very good. And I think in Pilate's mind that he, will, he says to them, look, all right, I don't find any basis for any kind of charge against him. I've done this. Is that good enough? And immediately, John tells us, the religious leaders, not the people, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, shout out, crucify. Crucify. And these people who are supposedly representatives of God have such bloodthirst that even... This flogging and this beating is not enough for them. They want, I think in their opinion, they want justice. They want this man who is against them eliminated. And the reason for this, they say, is we have a law. And the law says, you claim to be the son of God, you have to die. Now there's speculation about whether that law was really true. Whether that really was was the truth. And, and yet, when you look at the life of Jesus, as these conversations take place through the Gospels, people say, what more could the Son of God do than what Jesus has done? And they're falling back on this law. And there is always this sense of, of truth and justice that go together. And we connect them so often. But it's always about our view of truth that then bears on our view of justice. And the reality is... This law that they describe is pretty arbitrary. And often the ways in which we, we, the things about that make us upset, the things that that where we want to cry out for justice are often about the things that people do to us. And we give very little thought to the things that we do to others. 
We just want people to get what they deserve. Not ever stopping to realize that that can be a pretty dangerous way to live. But we get so enamored with justice, so enamored with getting what we want, that it doesn't matter. Now, there is, I, I think in some sense, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, believe that they are protecting the law. They have identified themselves with the law. All of their identity is wrapped up in the law, and that's part of the problem. Their identity is wrapped up in obeying the law, not in God, who has given them the law. And when you and I get wrapped up in, in obeying the things that we think are right, instead of being focused on God we're going to end up looking just like them. And our cries for justice ignore the things that we might do while we hold other people accountable. Now, we might not cry out, crucify them. But in a sense, that's what we want to have happen. We want people to get what they deserve. We want people to, to see the, the strong hand of God on them. And there is a place for genuine justice. There is a place to step in and to say, wait a minute, this is totally wrong and something needs to be done about this. And we need to do that. And we need to stand up. But my concern is the spirit and the attitude with which we do that. Because often we are far more concerned about making sure people get what they deserve than we are concerned about the people who are being treated unjustly. When you read through the Old Testament, and God talks a lot about justice in the Old Testament, there's a lot to say about it. What we find is that it's not the same kind of justice as we typically think of. In the Old Testament, the justice that God describes is helping people who are unable to help themselves. It is standing up for people who are innocent and vulnerable, people that society has, is crushing under the weight of people who have wealth and power and influence. It is caring for the people who are being treated unjustly. And it is a warning to people who are creating these atmospheres of injustice. But the scripture is also clear that vengeance is God's, not ours. And the reality is, too often, we as God's people, in our attempts for what we consider justice, create more injustice. At some point, we have to acknowledge our culpability to some of the injustice in the world. And we don't like to admit that. You think back to, well, I, I wonder what our country, how it would be different if from the very beginning, the church would have taken a stand against slavery. How different would our country be? How different would the relationships of people of different races be if the church from the very beginning would have said, this is abhorrent to God? No. And there were some groups who did that. 
But by and large, the church was very concerned because the people who owned slaves were some of the wealthiest people in the church. And you got to keep them happy. And we made all kinds of excuses. You know, well, they treat their slaves better than anyone else does. I just wonder how different things would be if the church would have said no to that injustice. How different would people view the church if, if instead of covering up abuse, we would have been forthright about it? And I'm not just talking about the Roman Catholic Church. This is an issue that goes across the, the, the landscape of all churches. It's a problem that has to be dealt with. But in the back of our minds, we have this thought that if this gets out, it's going to hurt our bigger mission. And the bigger mission is what's really important. And so we have to protect the bigger mission. And if people find this out, then it's going to hurt the church. It's going to hurt our bigger mission and all that God's called us to be. So the wise thing is to just cover it up. And what we're saying is, what's most important is the stuff we're doing out there, not protecting the people, caring for the people who are in here. And I just wonder how different people would see, how differently people would see the church if there had been a sense of forthrightness. How much would have been, how much would have been avoided? How much more abuse would have been avoided if it had been dealt with head on? And in our humanness, there is this sense of of feeling as though we have to protect the institution. And you see that in the Pharisees. That's exactly what they're doing. They're protecting the institution. Often, our cries for justice are about protecting our self-interests. You go back into the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Jesus has just healed, just raised Lazarus from the dead. It is this awesome event. And the people are, are flocking around Jesus... And some of them go and tell the Pharisees that what Jesus has done and how the people are, are following him and he's gaining, the crowd is, is gaining and growing more and more. And their response is, we have to put an end to this. Because if the people keep following Jesus, the Romans are going to come in and take away our power and everything that we have worked to accumulate. And from that moment on, they plotted to murder Jesus. Too often, our cries for justice, if we're honest, are more about self-interest than they are about really caring for the people who are being treated unjustly. And as the church, we have to humbly acknowledge that and repent of that And turn from that. It is the struggle of human sinfulness that that we want to protect our self-interests. That we want to turn things and twist things and shape things in such a way that we look good and our enemies look bad. And our goal is to take them down more than anything else. And it's in the context of that struggle that the cross stands right in the middle of our conversation about justice. Because it is the cross that defines how we handle justice, how we approach it, the attitude, the spirit about it.
Something in, in my mind as I read through the scriptures says that even in our cries for justice that are legitimate and right and holy and righteous, even in those moments, the cross calls us to a spirit that is different. A spirit that wants for other people God's mercy rather than God's vengeance. Even when vengeance is what people deserve. Why would we think that way? When people deserve God's vengeance, and we all can think of situations where that's the case. Why would we, why would we want God to give us a heart of mercy? Well, for one reason, because you and I are here only because of God's mercy. Every one of us, we all deserve God's vengeance. Every one of us in some way or another, either overtly or subtly, has in some way contributed to injustice in this world. It's a part of our sinful nature. We hurt people. We turn on people. We are part of the bigger picture of things that we just simply let it go and say, well, I'm not going to worry about that. And we all deserve the vengeance of God. But because of the cross, God is merciful to us. And and we ought to want that same mercy for other people. As I said, we we often will say, well, we want people to get what they deserve. And, And that is such a dangerous way to live. Because if that's really our mindset, then we have to look in the mirror first. And we are grateful. God doesn't give us what we deserve. But in the cross, there's mercy. And there is something about the spirit, about our attitude and our spirit toward toward people that that begins to create a spirit of who we become, not just who we are. See, when when our goal is vengeance... That's going to create in us a spirit of bitterness. It's going to create in us a a spirit of retribution and hatred. It is only a spirit of mercy, a desire for mercy. To let God do whatever he wants to do. But our spirit is wanting mercy that continues to develop within us a spirit of grace and mercy and love and kindness. You can't feel vengeful toward people and develop a spirit of love and gentleness and kindness and all the fruit of the spirit. It it just doesn't work that way. And the religious leaders are a perfect example of that. Their hatred toward Jesus just continues to drive them more and more and more. And it will you and me too. What if Jesus really was committing blasphemy? I'm not saying that he was, but what if he was? What if they were justified in in calling for his execution? Wouldn't the Spirit of God be be one in which they do that with a heavy heart? 
with pain in their heart because they ha- this needs to happen instead of the sense of joy that you get that Jesus is going to the cross. And when you and I look at the world and all of the injustice in the world, it ought to pain us. It ought to hurt us that, that there are people who need to, to be held accountable for the things that they're doing. And the accountability needs to be there and we need to stand up and we need to, we need to, to care about justice. But we do it with a heaviness of heart for what that's going to mean for people who are creating this atmosphere of injustice. And really it's the, simply the spirit of Christ. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he doesn't say, as he looks down at the people who have unjustly put him there. He doesn't say, Father, give them what they deserve. He says, Father, forgive them. And if that is the spirit of Christ who suffers the greatest injustice the world has ever known, how much more Ought it be our spirit? And that's costly. It's painful. It's hard. The cross is costly. As Paul writes to the Philippians, Jesus, who had every right to to claim every power in the world as God, gives it up in order to go to the cross for us. And so often we get wrapped up in, in proving that we are right. We miss doing what's right. And we're so interested in condemning people that we disagree with. And we don't realize that we have developed not the spirit of Christ, but the spirit of the people who put Jesus on the cross. It is about Wanting is about wanting the spirit of Christ in our lives and kingdom justice always brings us back to the cross and to mercy. Even as we live for truth. And you say, well, you know, how are people going to know what's right? Well, we stand up for what's right. But we do it not in arrogance, not in anger, not in vengeance, but in a spirit of love and mercy and in the spirit of Christ. Because if we love and lose, we still win. And if we don't love and win, we lose. And so Paul writes to the church at Corinth, if I I use perfectly every spiritual gift available and I don't love, it's nothing. If I'm the most generous person in the world and I don't love, it's nothing. If I give myself to death and I don't love, it's nothing. 
St. Thomas Akempis, great saint of the bygone church, said, Christ has many lovers of his heavenly kingdom, but very few people who are willing to bear the cross. And kingdom justice is always about bearing the cross. The cross is always at the center of our, of our cries for justice. As the prophet Micah says to the people of Israel wrestling for what it means for, to follow God, what God is asking of them, he says, it's not that complicated. God's told you what he wants from you. Act justly, to love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And that's why we come to the table today. This is a table where we receive the mercy of God. It's a table where we give the mercy of God. It's a table where we find embodied everything that that we mean by kingdom justice because at the center of this table is the cross of Christ. And we are invited to this table because God is merciful to us when we don't deserve it. And as we come to this table, we pray for God to fill us with the spirit of Christ that we might be merciful to people who don't deserve it. As we come to this table, may God give us grace to see what he's done for us and to be filled with a passion for what we might do for others. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your grace upon us and your mercy in our lives. Father, we, we know our sinfulness. We have turned away from you. We have failed to obey you. And yet your love for us has remained steadfast. Father, in our desire for justice, we have to acknowledge that we have often been unmerciful and unkind and self-centered. Forgive us. Father, as we come to this table today, we pray that you would pour out your divine blessing upon the bread and the cup, that as we receive them into our bodies, we may be stirred anew by your grace and mercy to each of us. 
and that we might have more of the spirit of Christ to be a presence of grace and mercy in the midst of the injustice of this world. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Our Lord, our Savior. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and then he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As you're released by Rose this morning, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup and eat it. You can return to your seat by the outside aisle. Feel free to stay at the, pray at the altar if you would like. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. Maybe this is the first time you've worshipped here, but if you come today with your heart open to God, desiring His mercy upon you and desiring to be filled with His mercy toward others, then come and receive these gifts from our gracious, loving Heavenly Father. and
washes me. Oh, the blood of Jesus shed for me. What a sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood it is my victory. Please sing with us. Save your son, holy one, slain so I can live. Oh, see the Lamb, the great I am, who changed. stand as we sing. How firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is it for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus 
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.